Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. This is a podcast where we bring indigenous worldviews and Western worldviews into conversations about science in Indian country, as well as the rest of the world. But we really want to be clear that we're not experts. We're just lowly grad students trying to understand these ideas ourselves. But we feel like these things need to be shared and that there's a message here that we can still be indigenous in the modern world and that science and spirituality don't have to be separate. Mm -hmm. And the topic of today's show is this idea that Annie and I have been going back and forth on a little bit about each of us bringing a topic of our own to the show just for the episode so we can have a back and forth about a related idea. And today we're exploring indigenous environmental issues and that's a pretty big topic, so it's perfect for this idea that we can choose more specific topics to share with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my topic this this time around I feel is very kind of relevant because being in Syracuse, we were surrounded by Onondaga Lake, which is one of the most polluted lakes in the world. And yeah, what is so crazy, right? What is the first thing that you notice about Flathead Lake? It's blue and beautiful and you can see the bottom. Yeah, you can. And so I was thinking, how can Flathead Lake ever be like Onondaga Lake? And I was like, that will never happen, right? And then I started to do some research and I came across um, the BNSF Railroad and how that goes from North Dakota and eastern Montana um, to the West Coast. Hmm. And do you know where that passes? Isn't that, uh, it goes through right next through Highway 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The so Burlington it, Northern Santa Fe. Yeah. I, I know all about that. <laughs> so it crosses the Continental Divide at um, Maria's Pass and it runs through Glacier National Park and it follows the wild and scenic Middle Fork Flathead River Corridor. And I think I kind of forgot about that. I really didn't put two and two together. I was like, there's no way that that lake will ever be anything than the beautiful, majestic thing that it is right now. Hmm. Now, as, as I was doing research, I was like, yeah, well, yeah, maybe, yeah, not, huh? maybe not. And so I really didn't understand kind of really the the importance of what BNSF is doing right now with transporting the crude oil and as i was doing research so i said a decade ago one of the facts that i came across was that barely four thousand railroad truck cars moved crude oil nationwide do you have any idea about nowadays what that is going to be like so a decade ago it was sorry how much four thousand railroad 4, tank cars i suspect that's increased yeah, so I think the, the website that I found was this was a couple years old, so I'm, I'm not sure about current up-to-date. But now they move 18 trains, each with 100 tra- tank cars that move along the Middle Fork flathead each week. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So in one tank car can carry 30,000 gallons of crude oil, and each train can haul up to 3 million gallons. Nice. Yeah. They're really hauling that shit. <laughs> they are really, <laughs> really crap. hauling that. Yeah, I didn't know about that. 
And so I was just like, wow. Or I did. I just didn't know how much. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you just see these train cars and you just watch them go past and you're like, oh, it's not that much. But when you actually really look at the numbers, it's a lot of oil that is being moved. And the Middle Fork is really, really important because it originates in the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Um, and it flows 98 miles to its confluence with the North Fork Flathead River near Columbia Falls, Montana. So this whole area is connected. So Glacier National Park is connected. All of these runoffs, all of the watershed, all of the groundwater is all connected. And that all leads down to Flathead River. Yep. So the moment that any kind of oil spill will happen, it gets in this little area. And because it's a wilderness area, you can't really get to these winding roads, these winding trains to clean it up fast enough. So by the time someone will get there, you have this increased chance of it actually getting in the groundwater and it getting into Flathead Lake. And so I really wanted to focus kind of my my side of it on how this actually affects indigenous people. Yeah, I think that has huge implications, very similar to the reasons people were concerned over on the Standing Rock Reservation. Mm-hmm. Just kind of that uh, environmental cost offset. It's like, oh, well, it's just above a res. Yeah. It's okay. Exactly. And so while I, there is a large indigenous effect that could happen, it also is extremely important to non-indigenous people that I think they don't realize. Because it's so close to Glacier National Park, Glacier National Park is the third most visited national park. I did not know that. Whoa, really? <laughs> yeah. Dang. Um, and it welcomes... I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Like, they have 2.36 million visitors um, mm. in 2015, and it generated $198 million. Damn. <laughs> yeah. So within the Flathead Those Valley, guys. that includes, like, really large cities like Whitefish, Columbia Falls, Kalispell, Polson, which is on the reservation. And so the reason that people come here is because of the pristine lands, the waters, you know, you have all these beautiful hiking spots, you get out of all that polluted area. So what happens in that case if it does become polluted? And no one really thinks about that. And it's not just an indigenous issue, but it's a whole Flathead Valley. It's a whole northwestern Montana issue that needs to be probably addressed soon. Um, Because between 2000 and, and 2012... While there hasn't been any, like, spills along the Middle Fork, um, there have been derailments along this corridor. So we have been lucky enough that there really hasn't been any oil spills, but we still have a very, very high chance that that could happen. And any kind of derailment can lead to oil spills, explosions, fire, um, hazardous material release like benzene, um, chlorine. And that not only affects the human health and safety, but it affects water quality, fish and wildlife, and the economic values of the region itself. Yeah, and I, I still remember this story that I've been told by my mom and other relatives from the Blackfeet side of the mountains where there was this huge corn shipment at one point on the exact same railroad, and it derailed and spilled all over the place. And this is classic, too. What they did is instead of get it out of there, they mm-hmm. just buried it. They buried all the yeah. corn, and so it for started fermenting, <laughs> oh, and it no. became alcoholic. Yeah. And then it attracted a bunch of bears. 
So mm. all, it was a bunch of grizzly bears came, and there, there was a lot of them sitting there eating that corn, and they got all wasted. So there was a bunch of wasted grizzly bears clogging up Highway 2 for a little while, and they had to call in a bunch of people to try to figure it out what was going on. And then they finally <laughs> cleaned it up because yeah. they had to. They had to, yeah. And that's one of the things, like, so back in oil is extremely volatile and flammable. So it requires, like, immediate cleanup. And because of the steep, narrow, winding mountain corridors that is that this railroad is on, it the response time and the cleanup is almost impossible. Like, if you've been in that area, you understand yeah, it's how remote. that works. It's remote. It's very, very remote. And if the oil gets into the river, that swift can just take it, and it flows downstream really fast. And... So I wanted to understand kind of the difference because you you hear all the time about how in oceans let me find where that is in my notes. Um in oceans, you always hear about these these oil spills. As soon as it happens, it's very publicized. You hear it all the time. But do you ever really hear about freshwater ones? Hmm. You know, I never really thought about that actually. Um not definitely not in the mainstream media. Yeah. So do you know which one is more common and frequent? Uh, I could tell by the way you're looking at me. It's probably <laughs> freshwater ones. Yeah, it's definitely because I know there's been ones. thousands of pipeline spills <laughs> mm-hmm. within just a few years. So yeah, so it's definitely freshwater, but because we are so our society is so into oil that it's just not publicized. Because if you were to publicize every single one, you would just, it would be like a, a weekly thing. Like, it would just be happening all the time. It would just be yeah. in the news all the time. Well, that's how a part of what stopped Vietnam was the weekly, daily mm-hmm. news broadcasts where it was right in people's faces. Yeah, but, I mean, journalism is definitely not the same as it was a few decades ago. Right. Let alone back in the Vietnam era. <laughs> And so I wanted to understand how what the difference was between oceanic oil spills and and freshwater bodied oil spills because I had no idea I had never really considered it or thought about it and so hmm. freshwater bodies are actually probably more sensitive towards oil spills and it's also more impactful on human health and the environment that it's around. Because when when it when it's in the ocean, we don't drink water that comes from the ocean. We drink groundwater. We drink fresh water. And so these these drinking waters that serve as nesting grounds, and then also food sources for freshwater organisms. And then you have animals. You have everyone that that really benefits from fresh groundwater. And so with this oil spill that happens within rivers and lakes and groundwater. Um, so it affects mammals, aquatic birds, fish, insects, microorganisms, vegetation. Um, so on top of that, we understand how the food chain works. So if freshwater microorganisms, invertebrates, and algae all are consuming crude oil, that just moves up the chain. And everybody from that point continues to eat crude oil, which I never thought about. But, I mean, it does happen. Does it bioaccumulate? I don't know. I couldn't find if it did. Hmm. I yeah, would be to interested look into to that. know if it does. Yeah. Because I've never heard them say that on news reports, and this is just an area of science I've 
never really explored. Yeah, and I actually got this from the EPA website. Mm, okay. Which I had no idea about until I started doing this research. And so freshwater is divided into two different kind of types of water. So it's standing water, which is lakes, marshes, and swamps. And then there's flowing water, rivers, and streams. And so it, depending on what type of water you're dealing with, the oil spill will have a different effect on each habitat specific characteristics. So within standing water, you're going to have a very, very impactful area because these areas don't move. And so mm. the oil tends to pool so it just in the gets water down into the substrate. And yeah. And so it just stays there for years and it, who knows how long at that point it will take to restore that, even if you can actually restore it. Um, so within lakes in itself, which is very important to us as CSKT members, because Flathead Lake was part of our part of our treaty rights. We get the southern half of the the lake, which includes the sediments that is on the shore of the lakes. Oh, really? Does it, the in the writing of it, or does it actually yeah. say that? And I, because I really, that's cool. I have such a hard time understanding treaties because it's in that really oh, old yeah. you gotta, language. Like, think about how they were talking back then. Yeah. And, yeah, and so I actually have that. I have. Um, a section of the Hellgate Treaty of 1855 that talks about what lands are reserved for the tribes. And so I'll read it to you if you don't understand it. I really don't understand it either, but it's kind of long too. So it says, commencing at the source of the main branch of the Jocko River, thence alonging the divide separating the waters flowing into the Bitterroot River from those flowing into the Jocko to a point on Clark Forks between Camish and Horse Prairies, thence northerly to and along the divide bounding on the west of the Flathead River to a point due west from the point halfway in latitude between the northern and southern extremities of Flathead Lake, thence on a due east course to the divide, hence where the Crow, the Prune, the Jock Rivers take the rise, then southerly along said divide to the place of beginning. Oh, yeah. Can you repeat that <laughs> part where it talks about the north and south end of Flathead Lake? Yeah, so it says, and along the divide bounding on the west of the Flathead River, oh, wait, to the point due west from the point halfway in latitude between the northern and southern oh, okay. extremities of the Flathead Lake. Yeah. So within that treaty right, the tribes that are currently within the CSKT Confederacy have an exclusive right to take fish from rivers on reservation, which and, and also Flathead Lake. So if we were to have a oil spill that could potentially affect what we obtain from our treaty rights, and that could affect the fish, it could affect the animals... It could affect everything that is important to us from not only is water important, but within our creation stories, animals is really important too. And if we don't have the certain part of our creation stories, we really start to lose who we are as a people. And it affects so much more than just the water quality. It affects your culture. It affects your identity. It affects 
coming home and seeing that lake is not only just this pristine, pretty thing, you know, it's, it's part of who you are. That lake has been within, especially Bitterroot Salish people in, in Blackfeet, you know, we used to have what, 20 million acres of, of ancestral lands. And then the Hellgate Treaty minimized that down to what, close to 1.3 million acres is the Flathead Reservation right now. Yeah. Yeah. And those numbers don't even really capture the actual nature of how we interacted with each other in the landscape because it was never this kind of set 20,000 acres or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It was, it was constantly changing depending on the environment, depending on the needs of the people and the agreements that Mm -hmm. people had between each other. And there's this misconception about like traditional enemies. And from what I've learned from my elders is that that was something that was invented by the Europeans to divide us. And that, yeah, we fought back in the old days, but it was mostly the young people, mm-hmm. especially the young warrior men that were trying to figure out their place in society and trying to figure out their own boundaries. And they'd go off, try to prove themselves and eventually come around and realize, wait, this is this is not helping me or my people. Right. And, um, but often those elders, they understood things and they worked together. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's uh, going from that down to this just barely over a million. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a huge contrast. Well, and then when you actually start to, start to think about it in, oh, I, I should have wrote these numbers down, but in, what was it, 1910, our... 19, uh, when did they really start to give out allotment? Uh, I think it was between like 1902 and 1910. Yeah. So I think in 1910, they officially opened it up for settlers, but there was years before that where they started handing out, um, allotments to, to tribal members. And I believe the number is, if I'm, if I'm incorrect, I'll correct it next week. Yeah. You can Um, always. Add a little blurb or something. I think it was one-fifth of the reservation went to tribal members, and everything else was opened up to white settlers. Yeah, I don't know the numbers either, but that, sound, that sounds right. Yeah, and, and so when you think about it, we actually don't have that much land um, because our tribe is – the reservation is now a checkerboard system where you can see that a lot of the land is – I think now we own – 60% of the reservation again, which is a lot more than what we have been doing because we've been doing land buybacks. Yeah. And that's huge considering the what that means per capita mm-hmm. because there's way fewer enrolled members that live here than there are settlers mm-hmm. or uh, descendants of settler people. Yeah. Well, I mean, they still are settlers. Their ancestors settled here. So, I mean... It's not like a bad thing. It's just their lineage. It's their mm-hmm. heritage. Yeah, and I think that that's something that is really left out within conversations is they have been here for a long time, since pretty much since we have been on here. So in 1855, that's when the treaty was created. In oh, 1890... Uh, I can't remember. Was the last time was was when the Bitterroot Salish was forced forcibly removed from the Bitterroot Valley and into the reservation. 
So, and then if settlers has coming around the same time, you know, they have been on the land too. And I think that is forgotten, but they also, non-Indigenous people don't understand the importance of land to the people as well. So it's this, this miscommunication that keeps happening that one side is always right and the other is always wrong instead of looking at it as a whole. Like, how can we make this place a better place? Yeah, I like that. And, uh, and I think that's why this BNSF railroad is such an important thing because it affects not only indigenous people that include multiple tribes, but it also includes all of the non-indigenous people that live here that call this place home. Hmm. And any kind of... Uh, how do I say this politely? We need to stay away from, from this idea of oil. I don't understand why we're still pushing oil. I know. It seems so archaic now. It does. Like, <laughs> we're living in the age of science fiction reality, and we're still burning old dinosaurs. Or no, we're still burning old plant matter mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to fuel our, our little clunky internal combustion engines. I don't know. I'm from my perspective, it seems super like all like old school, and but I mean, I grew up with cars, mm-hmm. and um, I also I think about the future a lot too, and technology and things. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what we need to start thinking about is how if we don't have this, what was it, thirty million three like whoa, whoa, let me find it again, um, thirty. Oh, three million gallons per train. Instead of doing that, how can we do a more clean, renewable energy source instead of that? Oh, did you hear with that law that got passed in California? Were you telling me about that? Yeah, I did tell you about that. That one was so cool. And I think Hawaii has something similar as well, where they continue to build homes that have... And I mean, it's just simple steps like that, incentivizing... Mm -hmm. Renewable industries. Mm-hmm. And I hear all the time, like, people are always like, well, wind turbines do habitat fragmentation and wind turbines ruin bird migrations and all of this stuff. And while that is true, it's still a better viable option than oil or uh, these other resources that aren't really fitting in today's world. That it's not mm. something that needs to be done anymore. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with me on that. Being in Montana, which is a very, very red state. Oh, that yeah. Loves I, have you seen oil. a map of all the oil production happening in the state relative to the rest of the country? Oh, yeah. It's, it's so cluttered. much. It, it's it's And there's crazy. a lot going on the, on the Blackfeet Res. Yeah. And, Mineral and oil extraction. And how do you, so how do you get past this, this mentality of, I understand that oil provides jobs and oil in it provides families with money and it does all this other stuff. But at a certain point, what happens when the oil is gone? Like, you, you know, it's, it's not a renewable energy. It's not something that is go- like we can continue to do over and over and over again. Once it's gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And it takes how long for oil to actually like accumulate and how long, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. We, um, there's, there's no way that, our current society will actually ever see that yeah. that, that renewal because it's on geologic time yeah. spans. We will never ever witness any of that that kind of reaccumulation, and but we will see it in with solar panels. We will see it with wind turbines. 
And it might be, it might have been just a one-off event too, because of the way the Earth's biosphere was working at the time, right? And the way yeah. it accumulated so quickly mm-hmm. and then got deposited really yeah. fast. I mean, relatively speaking, really fast and in huge amounts. That plant matter doesn't necessarily accumulate in the same way that it used to, like billions of years ago, right? Yeah. Well, we went through, oh, or millions, what, twelve to fifteen glacial periods in 25,000 years or something where we had this like really changing of climate that, that happened pretty, pretty rapidly. And I mean, that's how this was formed. I mean, glacial Lake Missoula formed where we are now and kind of this whole, this whole area, Missoula Valley, like all of it was created by that. And I hope we don't see that. I mean, but who knows with the way that our climate change is currently going that who knows it might have a drastic change in the climate. And it's like it's little things that need to change, but it's so hard to get people to change because of socioeconomic values that are Yeah, it really does seem system. to come down to that. And everyone wants new cars and everyone wants new phones and or they're just trying to feed their families and they can't, yeah. you know, they're not even thinking about this stuff. Well, and, and when you think about it, we, uh, CSKT just in, um, took control over uh, the hydroelectric dam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that was really important to our tribe. It was something that we had just been striving to do. And while that is great, will that still be the same if the oil spill occurs, what will happen to this multi-million dollar thing that we just purchased? Will we lose mm. the socioeconomic benefits that come from the clean lake? Will we lose it? Um, people coming and visiting. Cause a lot of it is tourism. A lot of people don't live in Montana, which is so funny because people tell me when you leave Montana, one of the most common things I think I've heard is, do you guys have more cows than people? And I was like, probably. I was like, I think we just reached a million people in what, 2010? Mm-hmm. Was a million people. So it's not a lot of people that come here, but we rely heavily on tourism because we live in this pristine place where it's uh, the last best place to go and visit. And when you think about it, why aren't we fighting more against this BNSF oil? Like, why aren't we doing more? I think you touched on it just a minute ago, and it's it, it really. I think it really does come down to the economics of the situation, and uh, and where people's values are at. The dominant society values ownership and property, not kinship and relations mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Although everybody values family, I'm not saying that. Western society doesn't value families or anything. It's just what I am saying is that <laughs> like as a fundamental principle that guides your social institutions, your production and creation of social knowledge and all this wisdom that every society has ingrained in it, mm-hmm. that arises from the principles of ownership and property in Western cultures, whereas in indigenous cultures predominantly they operate off of kinship systems and relation relations yeah and i think i know that we had talked a little bit earlier about the topic that you want to talk about and i think this might be a great spot for us to kind of transition into what you want to talk about your topic because i think we've kind of touched base on mine and 
if we do, if you guys want to hear more about um, this oil transportation, I will definitely post more. I'll also post the the papers that I've kind of read, the websites. There's also a great YouTube video. Um, it's about six minutes. It's not very long, um, and it's called "Oil and Oil and Water Don't Mix." Huh. Um, is yeah. that about specifically this railroad? Yeah, it's specifically about Whoa, this railroad wanna, and like I, what would I happen. Watch that. Yeah, it, I mean it's really short. I think it's like six minutes and forty some seconds. Cool. We'll so post yeah. that in the show notes. Yeah. So these will all be in the show notes. So if we want to kind of go over it some more, or if you guys want, you guys can let us know and we can kind of delve deeper into this. Uh, but I think this is kind of a great transitioning spot to to hear what Turtle has to say about his topic because it all ties in together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the idea that I wanted to discuss and just kind of hear your opinion on Annie and is this idea of natural rights. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily humans, although I'm not excluding people from this conversation. What I really want to talk about is the rights of nature, yeah. like the rights of the plants, yeah. the rights of the animals and the water and the land. And how those, in a lot of ways, tie into our responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in giving a voice to something that doesn't have a voice. Yeah, yeah, I've heard you say that before, and that's a huge reason why you're into conservation biology, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's important to be aware of those kinds of things, like why why we actually do what we do. Mm -hmm. It helps us either continue doing that or figure out if we should do something else. (laughs) Right. And so, yeah, the, this whole idea of having rights and imbued in nature, that is something really important to all indigenous people. And it's something that's built into all of our cultures that, uh, that they, in, a lot, in a lot of ways, they're equal to us. And we have a responsibility to uphold those rights and protect them. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think there's... To my knowledge, anyway, there's not a better example of this in the entire planet than what happened in 2010 in Bolivia, mm-hmm. where this party, the party was called, let's see, just a sec. The party is called a Movimiento al Socialismo. Socialismo. I think that's how it's said, but the acronym is MAS, and it's the majority governing party at that time anyway, I'm not sure if it is anymore, that in a lot of ways kind of staged a, a coup, a nonviolent coup against the more industrialized sections of the political system mm-hmm. because it, the country, historically, it was colonized for its silver. Okay. And so the Spanish crown exported silver out of there since I think the 1700s or something like that. Oh, wow. And... So the indigenous people were exploited for a long, long time. But the fascinating thing about Bolivia and what makes a huge difference in this kind of thing even possible to give nature rights is that in a country of 10 million people, which is relatively small for an entire country, there's some cities that have that kind of a population. But out of those 10 million people, over 6 million of them are indigenous. Oh, wow. And that's what this MAS group is, is it's a collective of indigenous farmers and uh, other people. There's a, there's another group, it's not just farmers, but I, I uh, can't find it here. But anyways, 
what happened was in April of 2010, they convened this World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth. And it was in Cochabamba, Bolivia. And they named it the Universal Declaration of Rights of the Rights of Mother Earth. And I just love the preamble here. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read this preamble, and then I'll talk about the, okay. the contents of this declaration. So the preamble goes, We, the peoples and nations of Earth, considering that we are all part of Mother Earth, an indivisible living community of interrelated and interdependent beings with a common destiny, gratefully acknowledge that Mother Earth is the source of life, nourishment, and learning and provides everything we need to live well. Recognizing that the capitalist system and all forms of uh, depredation, exploitation, abuse, and contamination have caused great destruction, degradation, and disruption of Mother Earth, putting life as we know it at risk through phenomena such as climate change. Convinced that in an independent living community, it is not possible to recognize the rights of only human beings without causing an imbalance within Mother Earth, affirming that to guarantee human rights, it is necessary to recognize and defend the rights of Mother Earth and all beings in her, and that there are existing cultures, practices, and laws that do so. Conscious of the urgency of taking decisive collective action to transform structures and systems that cause climate change and other threats to Mother Earth, Proclaim this universal declaration of the rights of Mother Earth and call on the General Assembly of the United Nations to adopt it as a common standard of achievement for all peoples and all nations of the world and to the end that every individual and institution takes responsibility for promoting through teaching, education, and consciousness raising respect for the rights recognizing recognized in this declaration and ensure through prompt and progressive measures and mechanisms, national and international, their universal and effective recognition and observance among all peoples and states in the world. I love so, that. So <laughs> that's huge. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of long and at a little bit, I think towards the end there, I kind of lost myself <laughs> in the words a little bit, but what I get from this is that, I mean, it's so ambitious. Mm -hmm. It's such an ambi ambitious statement. And I can definitely see a lot of Western scientists reading this and being like, ah, I don't know about right. that. That seems a little cheesy. <laughs> and so just to kind of continue on into the document, in Article 1, they talk about the rights of Mother Earth explicitly. Mm -hmm. And they start off by defining Mother Earth as a living being and as being unique and indivisible and self-regulating, and that there's relationships that are uh, integral between all beings in Mother Earth. And, and then the, and it continues on with seven other points. And then in Article 2, it goes over the inherent rights of Mother Earth. And then Article 3 talks about the obligations of human beings to Mother Earth, and that's that kind of that responsibility that we were talking mm -hmm. about a minute ago. And then definitions of the term being, and that very similar to a lot of documents, especially international ones, stating that nothing in this declaration restricts the recognition of other inherent rights of all beings or specified beings. So that's, that's kind of more the legal kind of aspect of the language in this document. So have you read this before? 
Oh, I feel like I have, and I just can't pinpoint where I had read it. Yeah, I know I heard about it, but yeah. I didn't really, really dive into it until I got into this graduate yeah. program. Yeah, I mean, I think the, this graduate program has really kind of opened my eyes into more of uh, indigenous legal issues and indigenous uh, current kind of like UNDRIP and and this declaration that are really kind of pushing towards this idea of Mother Earth itself being a an entity itself. And as a Western scientist, it is very hard to understand. But at the same time, I think that they know that Earth in itself is something that is alive and moving, whether that's like tectonic plates, which kind of move move continents like build continents yeah. like that affects wind currents and it affects water currents you have photosynthesis which is plants like you have all this other kind of cycles that occur on earth that it's really it would be hard to not consider it its own entity and i think that because we live in this socioeconomic world that it's property and you don't look at earth as a whole and all of the like, how amazing it is that we are where we are today. Like, what are we doing today? Like, do you know how we got here today? Like, do you know that it was caused by continental drift? Like, tectonic plates coming together. That the weather outside is caused by certain certain cycles. Like, it's it's something that, like, you don't put together as a whole. And I feel like these declarations really kind of put Earth as an entity itself and how you can't just look at a single thing. You have to look at it as a whole. Yeah, and there, there's no escaping that nature, that holism. And that's yeah. one of the major principles that I've gathered from all these various documents, like the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. And also there's the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And there's other doc- various documents out there. Yeah. But, the, but also just from studying the nature of traditional ecological knowledge mm-hmm. and the various research projects that have gone on in that area, as well as other areas of indigenous knowledge, it, it, the fundamental principle really does seem to be that difference between a family-based system and a property-based system. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the second major principles is that the natural world and everything in it is animate and sovereign not inanimate and owned. Yeah. So that's, uh, and that's very intimately linked to the family property dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And then this third one, and I definitely could be missing some, but the third major one that I found was that our rights and responsibilities are in, intimately linked to the rights of nature. Yeah. And I think like when I was reading, when you were reading the the intro to this, the first thing that kind of came into my mind was the three R's that we had talked about last episode. Yeah. I was it, thinking about those on the way. Yeah. <laughs> it, they never escape my mind. They're always in the back of my head, no matter what I do. And, and I feel like those really kind of touch base on exactly what they're trying to get at in this declaration. Mm. And it is important to not forget, you know, respecting and responsibility and like reciprocity in itself. Yeah, and that uh, that's a really important or important point too. The because those three R's, in a lot of way, it kind of gets even a, a little more simple than that, and it comes down to this idea that um, 
the first author that comes to my mind that's written about it is Melissa Nelson, where she talks about in original instructions oh, yeah. and how that reveals that there's this, uh, like the good life and every nation has a saying for this, like how to walk a good path. What's the good life? And that's one of the fundamental principles that was driving this bill, this really historic bill that Bolivia passed, which is it's now a legal document that's guiding their economy, their mm -hmm. political structure. It's, it was huge. And hopefully we can see something similar, maybe at least on reservations where we have some sovereignty to be able to make those kinds of declarations also. Mm -hmm. It's not quite possible for other indigenous peoples in other parts of the world. So, uh, but what I was getting around to was that there, they have a, a couple of different phrases for it. One is sumaj kausay or vivir bien. And it's the indigenous concept of living well or living in harmony with nature and how people are a part of that harmony. What's interesting though, and also, coming to mind is that that harmony has been disrupted massively since European contact. And now that, like you're just saying, the economic, the socioeconomic system has taken over and is dominating the planet mm -hmm. and not just societally, but nat like nature is dominated by this system as well. The, it's going to be a huge challenge to not just to pass these kinds of bills, but to actually make that transition because like i said it was this country's economy its modern economy anyway was founded on silver extraction mm -hmm. and on the backs of indigenous people and even in uh, 2010 when this bill was passed the economy there in bolivia let me find it here the number it was at, yeah in 2010 it was still 70 percent based off of mineral gas and oil extraction Oh, wow. When they passed this yeah. bill. And so there's a huge, there's a pretty big pushback from people in that area of the economy. Um, they didn't, of course, I mean, they had a interest in maintaining the status quo so they can continue to make money for their investors. Mm -hmm. And that's real. That's how the system's built. So, I mean, they're just doing their jobs, really. And uh, I, I struggled to understand how people can not take their jobs home with them and how they can't bring their ethics into their jobs and stuff. But... Um, I'm also, I was raised mm -hmm. differently than Most a lot people, of people yeah. in maybe cities or in cultures that, that have that property and ownership value system. And so yeah. I'm not saying that's wrong necessarily. It obviously has caused a lot of damage in the world. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I hesitate to call anything wrong because it's also brought a lot of value yeah. through modern medicine and modern science. And I'm not saying those are necessities or anything, but I'm not going to lie. I like my cell phone. <laughs> I, I really like to be able to get on Google and yeah, learn Google. stuff whenever yeah. I feel like it. So there's there's a lot of benefits to modern society mm -hmm. that shouldn't just be scoffed at. And yeah. it's how we use these tools. That's what we need to bring back. And, and hopefully we can reconnect with the land and have these tools serve not just us anymore, but nature. And I think that's kind of where it starts is these big, giant binding documents mm -hmm. at national scales. And in the United States, it's different, though. We may need to start, like, municipally or at state scales creating these kinds of documents. And like I said, especially the uh, Six Nations people, they have their own 
kinds of documents like this in their constitution and stuff like that, where they they, ha- they include their original instructions, mm-hmm. their creation stories, and the values that are imbued in those things. Um, so yeah, that, it's a it's going to be a struggle no matter what. So I mean, even in places where it's a huge, hugely dominant indigenous population, like in Bolivia, they're still struggling to transition that economy system over to one that actually follows these documents. But that's where it starts. I mean, unless there's kind of some kind of set of guiding principles, mm-hmm. people will revert to what's comfortable or what's profitable. So I'll go ahead and link. There's a publicly available PDF of this declaration, okay. as well as a, an article written by a journalist kind of describing some of the, the background to the bill and what was going on politically and economically at the time. And I just wanted to start with that because it's an interesting contrast to what this other document, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP for short, what, what they actually talk about in this document is uh, quite a bit different. Although very comprehensive and legally binding, like not binding, but legally protective in the way they say things, they don't really... Sorry about the noise. I'm flipping through my notes here. They don't really touch on that connection very much. That really holistic view mm-hmm. of the rights of nature and how they're connected with our rights and our responsibilities as people. And uh, the very first place they mention any of it is right here. (laughs) I printed this out all weird, so I'm looking at it strange. But it's on page two of this UNDRIP document. So the the United Nations, this is their, their guiding document for how they deal with indigenous peoples around the planet. And it's also... International, it's inter- internationally binding law, meaning that any nations that are a part of the UN, if they step out of this, there's potential consequences. Except but I mean, those consequences have limited reach <laughs> yeah. due to sovereignty issues and other things. And the, the United States classically <laughs> steps out of agreements at the last minute. And yeah. when, I mean, just they obviously are the ones that should be mm-hmm. leading the way in some of these areas, but oh, they're the not. Papal, papal power. Yeah, so the first thing on page two where they mention this connection to land is this section where they say, recognizing that respect for indigenous knowledge, cultures, and traditional practices contributes to sustainable and equitable development and proper management of the environment. And that's such a colonized way to look at it this idea that it needs to be managed and developed and is uh i I don't think a lot of indigenous people would look at it that way Mm -hmm. but that's a western way of saying we need to upheld we need to uphold our rights but really it's not even about rights it's about our responsibility to the land Mm -hmm. and that's really what is the resounding thing that I get from this other document from Bolivia is it talks a lot about the rights of nature, but the overarching theme is that this document is, is a way of us expressing that responsibility to protect those rights. And the other place that I found it here. So this is a really comprehensive document. It's 18 pages long and addresses everything from economic and socio-political issues all the way to religious practices and other things. And that's the second place where they 
they don't explicitly say anything about the environment or ecology or nature, but in Article 12, Section 1, on page 6 of this document, they say, Indigenous peoples have the right to manifest, practice, develop, and teach their spiritual and religious traditions, customs, and ceremonies. The right to maintain, protect, and have access in privacy to their religious and cultural sites. The right to use and control of their ceremonial objects and the right to the repatriation of their human remains. And the part I want to emphasize here is this section where it says the right to maintain, protect, and have access in privacy to their religious and cultural sites. Mm-hmm. So they don't say na- nature or the plants or and talk anything about that, but those religious and cultural sites are inherently linked to the all that stuff that this other document fleshes out very well. Right. The the land and the water and the plants and the animals and Mother Earth as a whole have inherent rights and inherent sovereignty in and of themselves. And it's our responsibility to uphold those rights and to protect them. So this, although a really important document, UNDRIP, does not quite uh, fully address the the actual the holistic nature of indigenous people's rights mm-hmm. because our rights are inherently linked to the rights of the land. Yes. Our rights are inherently linked to the rights of all of our relatives, not mm-hmm. just humans. And so I wanted to point that out and have those two documents there kind of to contrast the difference between Western and indigenous worldviews and how they manifest in these documents. But the power of it too, because... Look at, I mean, just how different those documents and the language of them are. And now Bolivia is tra- transitioning, so they're they're doing it. And mm-hmm. it's this these kinds of documents that is guiding the way. And uh, I want to relate this back to your topic, the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad and all that oil that's being shipped through, which I kind of knew... But I never, I, I didn't really know. So those numbers are really powerful to be able yeah. to hear those numbers. And it reminds me a lot of the situation in Standing Rock and why people were so upset and so, they felt so betrayed mm-hmm. by the system and by the government for allowing that to happen and for even in a lot of ways just pushing it through for economic gains mm-hmm. really is what, what it was all about. And so again, it goes to that back to that really fundamental difference between ownership and family, between mm-hmm. property and kinship. So yeah, um, and I, I tend to mix those up. So it's that that property and ownership versus the kinship and relations. Mm-hmm. And that those, I mean, the difference. You can, all you need to do is look at the day to day interactions of native people that are living their ways. Mm-hmm compared to the day-to-day interactions of non-native people living their ways. Mm-hmm. And in a, I just want to say, just this is kind of a side note a little bit, I just want to say that that dichotomy in a lot of ways, that between native or, and non-native or indigenous and non-indigenous, is really a false dichotomy. Because for one, we're all human, we're all the same species. Two, there's no such thing as like a continuum between primitive, quote-unquote, air quotes here, cultures and civilized cultures. There's 
It's like evolution. Like Darwin talked about in evolution, it's a branching. I mean, there's multiple endpoints and there's none of them are predictable. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of our societies. And we all have value to bring to the table. And I was just talking with someone yesterday and I, I really trust and respect this guy's opinion. And what he told me was that he believes that all of this happened for a reason and that yeah. there's the old, old stories about that someday these people are going to come mm-hmm. and that w- what we're going through now is really important. And so it, in a lot of ways, it, it makes it helps me realize how insignificant I am because I'm a <laughs> part of this huge continuum. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm, just, I'm connected to that massive mm-hmm. change that we're experiencing and I can contribute to it in my own way. I think that I agree. I think the dichotomy in itself is is not there, but I think that the outlook of of how you understand what comes before you and what comes after you is extremely important. And I feel like that's where the difference lies. And I think that we have talked about this before about this idea of seven genera- the seventh generation. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I had never heard of of this way that. Kaya put, and I think Neil put, where there was, you look at the three generations before you, you're, then the three generations after you, and then you're, then you're the seventh generation. That's the way I was raised to believe. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard it like that. And like, that just kind of like really touched base with me. Yeah. Because I've always like learned, like I was Angus McDonald's seventh generation. Mm, So I'm seven generations from him. But that's and, true too, though. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So, like, no matter how you look at it, I think that we look at generations in itself as indigenous people or uh, native people look at generations differently than non-indigenous and non-native people. I think it's just like the different worldviews that tend to change. And you, so when you're non-indigenous, you maybe look at what one generation, maybe your kids, your grandkids. But how far down that line do you look into the future? Or how far back do you look into your past to learn from them? While we as indigenous people, we know our creation stories, which from time immemorial, like we, we, that's what we know. We learn our lessons from that. And I think like that's the major difference is just like, and I think that you've said this before is like, we're all indigenous and like we just need to like find our roots. And I think once you go back to those roots, like you really understand how to move forward and how to have a better future. And I really like how you brought up Standing Rock because a lot of the things that I got out of my research with this railroad was how important water is. And Mm. and Standing Rock, I I believe in itself, was water's life and understanding that really you can't do anything without water. And it's very true. And, And I feel like they both tie in together this idea of ruining water. What happens when that water is gone? Like, what do we do? when we ourselves are 70% water. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I think it's just important, and, like, I, I really like what what your topic was. Yeah, I... Likewise, I feel like they have a lot to do with each other. Mm-hmm. And that, that happens a lot in this area <laughs> of study because we've said it before, that whole interconnected, interrelated holism mm-hmm. of these kinds of ways of knowing. So... Yeah, that definitely makes sense that they would be connected. But the the connections that we're choosing to make, I think, really speaks to some of the speaks to our commonalities 
And I hear, especially here on the reservation, there's a, because there's three distinct cultures here, sometimes people can get lost in focusing on the differences. Mm-hmm. And what I realized actually just yesterday was that a lot of ways what I'm going to be focusing on is the opposite, is the commonalities between the peoples here. Especially that now that there's 150 years of shared history oh, yeah. together. So, and all this intermarriage... And that's uh, true. That's true for a lot of different peoples mm-hmm. across the United States. And I'm sure in other parts of the world as well, where um, indigenous people were segregated both in space and time. And because of that displacement off the land and um, the different relationship dynamics that happened between their colonized governments and the people that they ended up having to interact with over since that time where they contacted those uh, colonial systems uh, that I'm sure inevitably results in cultural change. You can't deny that our our cultures are going to change over time. And so I realized that our commonalities are more important to our growth and more important to moving forward and regaining sovereignty than focusing on our differences. But mm-hmm. I'm not saying we should ignore our differences, but there's this balance that we have to have where we're accepting and acknowledging and loving each other for our differences just as much as we are our commonalities. And I feel like um, that's a lot of what I recognize when you're talking about the the railroad and, and the dangers that it has for not just the native people here, but the settler population as well Uh, all the ranchers and the farmers they depend on that water yeah they do and if that water gets polluted they're screwed i mean economic they won't be able to feed their families their their livestock will die off and they'll face years of deprivation and destitution and not just that but the people in the cities too i mean nobody escapes that Mm -hmm. Uh, water is life i mean that's a very it's it's become cliche within certain circles and because it's been said so much but the, that's true mm-hmm. Every, it is life and i mean just from a purely biological standpoint that's the only way we understand life and how it evolves is it needs water mm-hmm. so for life to continue the way we know it that water needs to stay clean at least a little it bit really anyway <laughs> and uh um I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up the show, too, about this whole idea of how our economy works and how it's really not serving anybody, let alone indigenous people, and that the rights of nature are inseparable from the rights of native people. But I, what I want to end the show on is that the the common theme that cuts across Everything that we've been talking about is that because we live in the modern world, the economic situation takes precedent. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to serve anybody to ignore that fact. So to leave people with a few tools to kind of take home with them today, I wanted to kind of just touch on maybe what some potential directions where we could go from here based off of kind of what we know of the history of this, of environmental issues and indigenous people, but also what we talked about today. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, it seems like it starts with these 
And again, going back to this idea that we live in the modern world and there's this dominant system that's running the show right now. And it's not, we, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of value in trying to change that, but you can't really change a system until you make it obsolete, mm-hmm. until you come up with another system that makes that one obsolete. This guy, Buckminster Fuller, said that, and he's one of the smartest guys that ever lived. Not many people know about him, but he was a really awesome dude that came up with some amazing uh I, I believe he was like an engineer or uh some kind of um maybe a physicist i'm not totally sure actually i just love his quotes <laughs> I, just, I love his quotes but anyways to get to my point is uh that it could start with these kinds of documents and speaking to specifically to indigenous people in the united states of america because we have this domestic dependent relationship, but it's supposed to be government to government, we have a certain level of freedom to be able to create these kinds of documents mm-hmm. for ourselves. And there's definitely been some nations that have done this kind of thing mm-hmm. where they either rewrote their constitution or they've just never really accepted or allowed the Indian Reorganization Act governments to form in the first place. And so they're able to maintain and retain their original instructions in these kinds of documents that stipulate legally how to go about relating ourselves to the natural world. So starting there, and because because that honors the fact that we live in this bureaucratic system that operates on these kinds of documents, Mm -hmm. And that economies are not going to change until they're incentivized to do so. So, and it kind of starts with that government because the government regulations are really what incentivize different kinds of economies. Mm-hmm. The, the govern the political and economic systems are inseparable, whether we want to admit it or not. We've seen it play itself out over and over again. And so that that could be a place to start, especially for people in the United States. But not all people in the in the world have this kind of political structure that allow for these kinds of documents to be created. And Bolivia is a really unique circumstance because they have mostly indigenous people living in that country. Yeah. So it, it's a hard um, route. But what, what do you think about that? Do you think is there something I'm missing, or do you think maybe there's another place where people could start that would have like the biggest bang? For the buck? No, I, I agree 100%. And when you were talking about Bolivia, like it reminds me of where this idea of food sovereignty began. And that was in Guatemala. Mm, yeah. uh, this idea of, of really indigenous people themselves being food sovereign and them deciding what kind of foods they want to grow. And it's another good place. Yeah, a lot of people are consuming and producing. Too. Yeah. And so it's. Like I think that it does kind of happen on this this like this this kind of smaller scale that gains momentum. Like Standing Rock started off small and like it gained all this momentum, and I feel like you have to continue down the momentum. Like you can't just stop. Like once once you reach like a point where you feel like you there's nowhere else to go, maybe you reach like a wall. I know like I faced that in my research myself is. I came to a spot where I was like, I can't get past this. And then I would, instead of moving past that, I moved on and I just went to a completely different subject. Like I never pushed through that hard area of, I don't know what to do. Hmm. And I think that it does start government to government. I think, but it also starts with really your own individual values. Yeah. Grassroots, right? Your grassroots. And like, 
how do you feel like you can contribute to a greater good? And maybe you don't. Maybe your whole idea of life is a monetary value. Yeah. And hmm. if that's what you decide, then that's what you decide. But if you feel like you need to do more, then start with yourself. Start with, I know my mother instills in me all the time to vote, to vote for people who share the values that you have. Yeah, it was weird being here and not being able to vote because I'm a New York resident. I'm a resident. New York resident. Yeah, <laughs> we're both New York residents. Yeah. So I was like, I can't vote here. <laughs> um, so it is really weird, you know, coming here. And, and yesterday we had elections, mm -hmm. and so I wasn't able to vote. But I'm really glad that the people on the Democratic Party actually ended up the one that I wanted. She did win, and so she'll be the, the Democratic nomination. Um just something like that. Something little that you decide. And I think I've mentioned this before. Um, yeah, voting is so easy. Yeah, it's so easy. And I feel like everyone, the, the major issue that I hear with people is, well, my one vote isn't going to count. <laughs> but, That's so ridiculous, too, because uh, oftentimes the same people will go and put their money in a machine that has even less odds yeah. of getting what they want. Ugh, gambling. Like, yeah, gambling. So, yeah. I mean... It's kind of funny. And so it starts with yourself, and then it starts with you changing your own, what, local government. I think that we've talked about this before in our drive back is, is really focusing on the importance of local governments and, yeah. and really kind of instilling your local government with the values that your community shares and then moving that to, like, a more state scale then maybe moving that to more federal scale. Um, I think I read somewhere that in oh, – I'm going to get this wrong. Maybe in New Mexico there was a woman who – a Native American woman who won the the primary. So she has a chance to become um, a congresswoman if she wins the, the election in November. Oh, is that the woman in Idaho? Uh, no, she's running for governor though. Okay. Um, but if she did win, so she won the Democratic nomination to be governor. Yeah. Um, so nice. there's like great like native women that are currently running um, in other in other states, yeah, Montana. Cool. We're we're gonna get there eventually. Um, and so I feel like you do just kind of have to take steps yourselves, and mm -hmm. whether or not they're small steps, they're still steps in the right direction. So don't ever think that what you're doing is never enough because it is. And I think that's kind of maybe an illusion a lot of Americans are under is that these kinds of changes happen in these gigantic sweeping bills that just mm -hmm. completely revolutionize the whole system. But typically that's not how social change happens. Yeah. And unless it's a super oppressive regime and there's just this breaking point in the population and people are, are totally fed up and they're uh, actually gathering in large numbers against the government and stuff. But right now, like you're saying in the, in the United States and in most situations, and this is exactly what happened in Bolivia is it is grassroots mm -hmm. because in Bolivia, it, what made it possible was this huge coalition yep. of farmers and other indigenous people that created a political party. Yep. And once they got into the majority and they were in power and oh. Evo Morales, also an, an indigenous man, was the president the situation was perfect for them to create this kind of a bill. Mm -hmm. And that can do, that can definitely happen in the United States now that people are more aware of indigenous issues and environmental issues. They're more willing to speak up about it, but just that awareness, uh, that class we that um, you were in that, and I was TAing this quarter was really eye-opening because of how little those other students knew. Yeah. 
They um, had no idea. Some of them that native people <laughs> were even a thing. Like we yeah. even existed anymore. So that that kind of awareness is really critical. Mm-hmm. Spreading that kind of awareness and that change is possible. And it starts with these small steps. And eventually, those steps all add up, and you've walked a thousand miles. Mm-hmm. That old Chinese proverb goes: a, "A journey of a thousand leagues begins with one step." Yep. And that's so true. It's so true. And so, yeah, I, I really agree that it has to be grassroots. And what's cool is, uh, at local levels, these kinds of documents can manifest, mm-hmm. and at tr- uh, local reservation and tribal levels, they can manifest. And eventually, you get the snowball effect to where you get. 25, 30 states that yeah. are making declarations on the rights of nature yeah. and the federal government has to follow suit. That's the way this system was designed to work. Unfortunately, it's such a slow process <laughs> uh, and it's it's really hard to kind of keep your nose to the grind while um, there's all, all these other issues mm-hmm. on the table, especially now with the political system the way it is. <laughs> So, yeah, I think that's important that, I mean, and that's where it starts. I, I think you, you couldn't have said it better that it starts with yourself and just how you live your life. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. It was a little bit of a longer episode, but that's how it is. We're running on Indian time, so <laughs> it ends when it ends. And I really want to be grateful for all the indigenous people out in the world that are making change and fighting against this system that nobody is benefiting from. Mm-hmm. Even the, 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 that 1%, that top even less than 1% of super billionaires, they're not benefiting either because their ancestors have to live in this world too. Exactly. And I'm, I'm really glad that you touched based on like really showing gratitude towards indigenous people. And like, I just want to show gratitude towards towards non-indigenous people that are really doing stuff. Oh Um, yeah. I received an email, uh, the other day saying that this guy had been listening to our podcast and it really kind of encouraged him to do his own kind of funny HR work that he wants to do. And, and so that just shows that what we're doing, even, even even if we're not reaching a lot of people, like we're still, we're still reaching people. And so I just want to thank everybody and I'm extremely grateful and yeah. And that helps so much when we can get that kind of feedback. Yeah. Um, to let, I mean, just to let us know if we're doing well and if we need to address an important topic that we maybe we're missing or Mm -hmm. something. So yeah, if you guys want to find us, we're located in all the main podcast download locations like iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, there's the, what is it? Po- uh, Pocket Casts. So pretty much anywhere that you would think to download mm-hmm. podcasts, you can find us there. And you can also find us at our website, which is www.word, or sorry, www.indianscience.com. <laughs> Indian Science Show. That's N D N Science Show. Dot WordPress. Dot com. And we can also be found on Facebook and Instagram, and those are both at Indian Science Show. So N D N S Science Show. You guys know how to spell that. Yeah. Um, we also are same. going to be focusing, um, hopefully, a Twitter page somewhat soon. Um, haven't really got around to it. Um, so the following, so this following week on Tuesday, we will be having a Taxa Tuesday. I'm sorry that we've kind of been a little bit slow on that. I was going to do it yesterday. Um, 
just didn't oh today is wednesday in case somebody cares <laughs> um <laughs> kind of forgot this will be probably going out on friday so you it will be a little bit later um but we're really going to try to get on Tax of Tuesdays um, for the next the next few weeks, at least. I have a few ideas that I want to do. Um, and those will be on Instagram and Facebook mainly. Um, if we get the Twitter up, it will be on Twitter, too. Um, we are also in between uh, recording spaces, so I'm sorry if you hear any truck sounds we are right next to (laughs) highway 93 right now where i know i can hear it so i'm sorry if that's happening um we're trying to find a better office space and so with that i know that we don't request much from our listeners but if you do want to support us financially we are looking for sponsors that want to help us with our podcast since we are grad students this is all coming out of our pockets and we are doing research as well. And so our, our time is limited to really kind of have extra fun. So if you guys want to support us, we are more than welcome. Um, just kind of hit us up on any of our, our what are they called? Online our, uh, <laughs> location or yeah. our online platform. Our online whatever. platforms. Yeah. yeah. Um, let us know. We're going to try to get a Patreon page set up. So if you guys want to do it that way, um, it will be easier. We'll kind of keep you guys up to date on our social media accounts about what we're going to do financially if you guys want to help us out. Yeah. And another thing that really helps a lot is if wherever you download our podcast, if you can leave a review, that mm-hmm. helps tons. Not just with us helping or not just with us kind of figuring out what kind of content to put out and maybe what you guys want to listen to, but also it helps a lot with getting more listeners and mm-hmm. spreading the word because people see those reviews and it gives them a picture of what the listeners are getting from the mm-hmm. show. So definitely leave a review if you can find the time and rate us, give us five stars, of course. <laughs> like and uh, yeah, we, I just uh, definitely want to be grateful. I think that's important to really stress every time because that is such an important thing to help get through the day is just be grateful for stuff. Mm-hmm. I know that gets me through the day. I, I wake up and I just think of three small little things to be grateful for, even if yep. it's just the feeling of water on my face mm-hmm. or the taste of the water going or the feeling of it in my throat and simple stuff like that. Sometimes it's really big, like <laughs> I'm, I, I'm grateful for love or <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's different depending on the day. So today... Uh, I just can't be more grateful for all the people out there, both indigenous people and non-indigenous allies working towards change and protecting our other than human relatives. Mm-hmm. So so I think I you. ended the show last time, so it's up to you to end the oh, show yeah. this time. Yeah, I kind of thought about that a little <laughs> bit. And I will go ahead and just say that I didn't really think about it. <laughs> very much but i'll just put it like this i love that we're continuing the show and i love the direction we're taking with it Mm -hmm. and i'm really grateful to be able to offer some of these insights and some of these lessons that we've been learning on our own, but together yeah. over the last year of graduate school and even our, our whole lives, too, because mm-hmm. it's been building up since then. And from then until now, it's hard to actually 
put into just one conversation all of these really important things that seem to have crystallized all the important things that I've been trying to put into words my whole life. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I'm grateful for all the listeners. And with that long, super long <laughs> thank you being said, we are going to go ahead and sign out. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you on the flip side.